0: Okay, so the genealogy of Christ. You might know this. In the Bible, there are two genealogies of Jesus, one in Matthew, one in Luke, and they're not the same. They're not even a little bit the same. Like basically, you know, Jesus and Mary and Joseph are mentioned in both. Maybe Abraham, that sort of thing. But no, there's there's dramatic differences. Matthew's list, for example, starts with Abraham. And Luke begins all the way back with Adam, goes further back. But even in Luke's list, the people after Abraham are almost completely different than Matthew's list. And there are like names like Shealtiel and Zerubbabel that show up in both lists, but they might not even be the same people. So what's going on here? And like, for example, if you look in Matthew, Joseph's father... It's called Jacob, the father of Joseph. But in Luke, it says his father is named Heli. So what is going on here? Well, there's three options for why these are so different. One is the Bible's wrong. One of them just got it wrong. Now, because we believe in the Bible, we think obviously that's not true, right? But there's another reason why it's obviously not true, okay? Okay. Luke and Matthew endeavored to write these Gospels, even if they were making it up. It wasn't like you could type it and print it in an hour. This was hard work, and they did their homework, and they both had lists that could easily have been refuted by the rest of the church back at that time. So if either list was obviously wrong, the church would have said, yeah, Matthew, no, that's that's not a thing. This isn't really his genealogy. Because again, it was so important to the Jews to have their genealogy, that if this was wrong, it could have been easily verified and proven wrong. So that's not the most likely option, that Matthew or Luke got it wrong. A second idea for why they're so different came from a man named Eusebius, who wrote a book on church history around 350 AD, so a long time ago. His idea that there's something called leveret marriage. you know what leveret marriage is? Basically, in that culture, and you can see this in the Old Testament a lot, that if a, a man married a woman and died without having born any children, his brother could marry the woman and bear him children, and then the children would be accounted to him even though they were by his brother. And so, in that situation, a man might legally have a father, but biologically have a different father if the first husband of his mother died before they bore children, and his brother married her, and they bore children, that, that son is now biologically the father of his legal father's brother. So because of that scenario, Eusebius thought that perhaps one of them here, like maybe he thought was more like, more like Luke, was probably referring to the sort of Leveret fathers. Um, and so he says, for example, that Joseph being listed with two fathers is perhaps because Heli, from Luke, may have initially married Joseph's mother, but didn't have any sons with her, and so then she married his brother named Jacob. That's one idea, kind of complicated. I guess it could be that way. I sort of think Matthew or Luke would have mentioned that if they meant that. Maybe not necessarily. Um, The third option is a little more popular today. Most conservative scholars hold this view. This is what I was always taught. This is a Plausible explanation. Some say that Matthew is recording the genealogy through Joseph, and Luke is recording it through Mary. Meaning Matthew is following the line of Joseph, who's, who's you know his legal father, through David's son Solomon, while Luke is following the line of Mary as a blood relative through David's son Nathan. And since there is no, apparently there's no word in the Greek back then for son-in-law when Joseph was called the son of Heli by marriage to Mary maybe they think Luke meant that was his father-in-law but they tended to mention the men more than the women into these genealogies and so that's one idea that Matthew is through um, Joseph's actual lineage and, Mary, and Luke is through Mary's lineage. Now either way Both lineages prove that Christ could have been the Messiah because it was very important in the Jewish religion, and they believe this to this day. In fact, you can go on shabbat.org, which is a Jewish non-Christian website, and they'll still explain why if anybody claims to be the Messiah, they have to come from the line of David, and they have scriptures to prove that. Um, And we'll look at a couple of those now. This is, and this is taken from Shabbat.org, so I wanted to make sure that I had um, accurately represented the Jewish beliefs, not just the Christianized version of it. They quoted on Shabbat.org this verse, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, which was David's father. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Jeremiah 23 verse 5. Behold, these are coming because of the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Next verse, in his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So they view these passages as prophecies of their Messiah, and they use those verses to say he must come from the line of David. So what we're seeing here is the first example of many that Matthew will give, where as we go through Matthew, He's going to keep showing where Jesus does things that fulfill prophecy about the Messiah. This is the first one, we already see it. And so he's, so obviously many people came from David. So just, just by coming from David doesn't mean the Messiah. But if you are the Messiah, you have to come from David. So it's an important prophecy. All right, what's this deal with the 14 generations that Matthew mentions? In the last verse there, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So Matthew's doing something interesting with this genealogy. He groups them into three sets of 14 generations. Now, if we follow the Old Testament story closely, we can see that there are some names left out of Matthew's genealogy in order to make that three sets of 14 happen. And it's called an abridged genealogy, and it's not entirely uncommon. The fact that Matthew left some out shouldn't shock us. There's, for example, if you look at Genesis 5, Genesis 11, you'll see the same kind of thing. One of those, they're the same genealogy, but one of them is a little more abridged than the other. And some think they would do that to, to aid in memorization. Just like how I might not know all of my relatives, but I might know the more famous ones. Um, they may have done something similar in order to keep the list short enough to memorize, So they think that's why perhaps maybe Matthew had kept it abridged because putting it into 3, that's a 14, maybe made it easier to memorize. And again, memorizing that would be important because they would want to prove that Jesus was a Christ and they'd want to list off this genealogy. So um, is the number 14 special in any other way? There's some people that subscribe to this idea that every number mentioned in the Bible has... Some kind of other spiritual significance. Now, some numbers obviously do. And some numbers, are. it's not so obvious with them. With this one, it's not so obvious. There's no really place in the Bible that gives any kind of special meaning to the number 14. Some think it was just a literary structure that, that Matthew used, and that's all there was to it. Although there is a place in 1 Chronicles 1 and 2, where there are 14 generations listed between Abraham and David, and so some think maybe Matthew just used that idea and decided to add on to that and make them all in into of 14. Or some think that, well, 14 isn't special by itself, but 7 is, and since 14 is double 7s and 7 is the number of completion, maybe there's something in here about, you know, that. um, I think it's kind of pulling at straws to do that. it doesn't seem to be Matthew's intention, in my opinion. So you're free to, to look into those things. I don't think that there is anything hidden about the number 14 here, but I think Matthew just used it as a, a literary structure, as a mnemonic device with this abridged um, genealogy. So that's a lot of bo- uh, boring information. I'm sorry I had to give it to you that way, but it felt important to give it to you. So what I want to do with the remaining time is talk about some of the people in the genealogy that I think are fascinating. And you'll see maybe why I think they're fascinating as we go through this. Who's heard of Abraham? Everyone's head goes up, right. Isaac? Jacob? Isaiah. A few less, all right. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those names are paired together a lot because God... Often will announce himself by saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And why does he do that? What does that mean when he says that? What do you think? Why do you think he's always saying that? He's not saying, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Solomon. What? I think it's because those were the father of all of them. So they should obey the God that their fathers is obeyed. That's a good idea. Yes, Aiden? Another one is because he, he, he wants to remind others of the promise to Abraham and how that continues. Yes. That really yes. He promised to Abraham to make him a great nation. And then he promised the same thing to Abraham's son, Isaac. Through you, my promise will be fulfilled. And then through Jacob. Again, through you, because they all had multiple sons, you know, But th- but through you will come this great nation of Israel. And so he's reminding them of his promise to them. That's true. So, God first made this promise to Abraham. We have no indication, by the way, that Abraham was doing anything right when God called him. We have no indication that he was fasting and praying for a month to hear God's still small voice. All we know, Genesis 12, God just says, Abraham, get up and get out of here. I'm taking you somewhere else. And he goes, all right. And he leaves. So, he's obedient. That's good. But that doesn't mean it was easy. There were times when Abraham messed up really badly. Um, Abraham, for example, lost patience in the promise of God and decided to work things out on his own and made a mistake there and it hurt people pretty badly for a long time. He also more than once feared for his own life because of how hot his wife was in foreign lands and kept telling her to say she was his sister and kept almost marrying her off to somebody else until God intervened and was like, Stop. And these kings are going, Abraham, you didn't tell me she was your wife. And he goes, oh, I was afraid of my life. So, like, multiple times that happened. So, it, his life wasn't perfect or spotless. He made mistakes. Isaac was Abraham's son. And believe it or not, he did the same thing towards his wife, Rebecca. They went into a foreign land. And he says to her, You're hot. Tell them you're my sister so I don't die. Same exact thing. The king found out. Very embarrassing situation. Very similar story. Jacob, now Abraham's grandson, uh, Jacob stole his brother's birthright. He tricked his father into giving him the inheritance by his mother's wishes, which is also part of this crazy story. Then he spent many years on the run because his brother wanted to kill him And he ended up living with uh, somebody else, marrying this man's daughters, multiple of them, working the land, a lot of friction in the family, competition over the flocks. And his sisters were constantly fighting over who he loved more, trying to bear more children than the other one to, to prove that he loved them more. Not an easy life, not a spotless life, not a perfect life by any means. You go a bit further down in the lineage, and you've got King David, an interesting character, very humble beginnings. He was humble. He was a shepherd. He wrote songs to God while playing with a harp or whatever, and he's watching these sheep on the hill. And so we have these songs like, you know, you are my shepherd, and you lead me beside still waters. You restore my soul. As he's looking out at these sheep and thinking about God. It is has great, humble relationship with God. God calls him to be king, chooses him to be king after Saul but then he spends a lot of time serving Saul while Saul's going crazy trying to kill him. Then he becomes king, does a lot of great things, also does some not so great things. He ends up taking somebody else's wife, having that man killed. A prophet's got to come against him. And then he repents and God forgives him, but not without severe punishment. So not a perfect story by any means. And then Uzziah I mentioned last. Uzziah was a king, mentioned here in verse 9. A very interesting king. He began to reign at age 16. Pretty young for a king, right? And he reigned 52 years. That's a long time. It says he was faithful to God. He did things that were right in God's sight. But then towards the end, he kind of got prideful and started thinking, You know, I've done right by God for a long time. I don't need to follow all of these rules. God knows me. God and I are good. And he decides to go into the temple and do things that only the priest should do. And God gives him leprosy. And he ends his days in leprosy, in shame. After that legacy, and then a huge mistake. I had slides for all these. I point these people out because it's interesting. I didn't even mention Solomon and his hundreds of wives and concubines. They're, these are all stories concerning people in Jesus' genealogy. Many of these people had highs and they had lows. Times where God used them. Times where God spoke to them. Times where they did what was Right. And then there were times where they messed up badly. You know, Jesus' genealogy is not a list of the greatest people who ever lived. They didn't need to be perfect in order to earn their place in his genealogy. They didn't have to be worthy to be related to Jesus. They weren't perfect. They were people who often loved God but were messy. They made mistakes, did embarrassing things, Hurtful things got proud, forgot their roots, and left God behind at times. And I say this because it's important for us as Christians to realize this. Some of us have been Christians for a long time. Often, when you first come to Christ, for lack of a better term, there's this sort of honeymoon phase where everything is awesome. Everything. All right? You, you've met Jesus, you're reading the Bible, you're praying, you're learning a ton of stuff. You're in these different fellowship groups. you're part of a church, you get involved. It's exciting, new and it's fresh. After you've been a Christian for a long time, you realize that life continues. You still face challenges. There are still struggles. There are still desert places. You still make mistakes and you still hurt people. You still get hurt by people. You still feel confused sometimes. And at times you feel like God isn't answering your prayers. And man, if I could just get back to that time when I first got saved and how I felt then. If I could just get back there. Sometimes you take matters into your own hands and you get impatient with God. And it doesn't end well. You can get to a point where you look back on your life, even after coming to Christ, and the road that you're on doesn't look like a 100% smooth, freshly paved, straight freeway where you've come from. You might see cracks in the road. You might see potholes. You might see weeds growing up through the road where it should be clean and smooth. The road might be windy with forks in the road where maybe you remember going the wrong way and having to drive around for a while to find your way to get back on the right road? Perhaps there are serious things in your past that look like car accident serious. And as you look back, you can still see the smoke and you still have a sense of like, these were significant mistakes in my past that I have a hard time letting go of. And so you look back and you're still seeing the smoke and the flames a little bit. And this is all part of the Christian life. This is all part of realizing that we still have to live in this world until Christ returns. And in this world, we will have trouble and struggle. We'll go through a hardship. We'll at times make the wrong choices. We'll be tempted and we'll still hurt people sometimes and make mistakes. And none of this means that God has rejected you. None of it means that you've gone too far to be loved by God. None of it means you're not saved anymore. It means like everybody else in the Bible, including those in Jesus' genealogy, you're following God and you still make mistakes. All of us here, if we're believers, we're following God and we still make mistakes, right? And what does God want us to do about that when we make mistakes? Does he want us to feel outcast? to feel on the outside, to not go to church until we've made ourselves right, to come back when we fixed ourselves, to isolate, to feel rejected. It's really simple. He wants us to repent and return and get forgiveness and come back to Him. God's love is stronger than any mistakes we make. Just a couple of verses to close with. Romans 5 verse 8. Oh, look at that had a cool image for that part. Christian life. You can't tell, but they're all broken people. Their backs turned, so you can't tell. But they're all broken, messy people. Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you while you were still a sinner in your sin, loving your sin. That's when He loved you enough to die for you, not when you fixed yourself. Two verses later, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Here's a neat verse for those that, are, that struggle with the idea of God's sovereignty. We were reconciled to God while we were enemies. Still enemies, and God reconciles us to Himself in a moment. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 15, Paul says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So even Paul is saying, I'm a huge sinner. Not I was, but I am. 1 John, oh, that wasn't supposed to be there. I missed the rest. There's some more verses you want to hear. 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So don't even pretend like you don't got problems now. That you're making God a liar. Because God knows you got problems, and he wants to help you. So this is the God that we know, the one who loves us like a father, the one who waits for us to return like the prodigal son. And as soon as we're on the way to return, he's running out to meet us embrace us and forgive us and welcome us back. And no matter how long we live and no matter how many potholes and car accidents we see on the road behind us, he's still there to guide us if we'll just let him. He's always just waiting and willing and guiding and chasing. He's not giving up on us. He'll always be our shepherd. He's always gonna make us lie down in green pastures. He's always going to lead us outside still waters. He's always going to restore our soul. And there's a place for every one of us in his kingdom if we'll just surrender to him and let him. Let him in. Let him lead us. Repent of our sins. Receive forgiveness. There's a place for us. First John 3 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. We don't need to remember those genealogies anymore because it's not based on our biology whether we're in or not. We have to remember one person in our genealogy, Jesus, right? Through him spiritually, we are now children of God because of his love for us. What kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. So you're in. If you believe in Jesus, you're in. Regardless of whatever messes in your life now or was, you're in. And we can be grateful for that.